And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West and the most haunted city in the country. Well, today's June the 5th, 156th day of the year. 209 days remain to the year's over with. The, uh, let's see, holidays observances. It's Apple Day, Festival of Popular Delusions Day, Hot Air Balloon Day. If you're in the state of Alabama, it's uh, Jefferson Davis's birthday, National Gingerbread Day, National Moonshine Day, uh, National Thank God It's Monday Day. Um, that's celebrated on the first Monday in January and June each year. National Veggie Burger Day, Sausage Roll Day, World Day Against Speciesism, World Environment Day, American the Beautiful Week, that's the first full week of June, Bed Bug Awareness Week, Black Single Parents Week, Canadian Environment Week, End Mountaintop Removal Week, Healthcare Executives Appreciation Week. That one's a puzzle. International Clothesline Week, National Business Etiquette Week, National Commuter Challenge, National CPR and AED Awareness Week, National Fishing and Boating Week, National Garden Week, National Headache Awareness Week, Pet Appreciation Week, National Lemonade Days, Prepare Tomorrow's Parents Month, uh, Step Parents Week, and Teacher Thank You Week. The uh, all that having been said, well, the peanut gallery tuned up, had to protect me from vicious dog walkers. All right, and 12:57. Well, some way, somehow, one of the one of the peanut gallery cut on the uh, security system. Anyway, in 1257, Krakow and Poland received city rights. 1284, Battle of the Gulf of Naples. Roger of Loria, Admiral to King Peter III of Aragon, destroys the Neapolitan fleet and captures Charles of Salerno. 1288, Battle of Orangen ends the War of the Limburg Succession with John I, Duke of Brabant, being one of the most important victors. 1610, the mosque Tethysa Festival is uh, performed in Whitehall Palace to celebrate the investiture of Henry Frederick, Prince of Wales. 1644, the Qing Dynasty Manchu forces, led by the Sunzi Emperor, takes Beijing during the collapse of the Ming Dynasty. 1798, the Battle of New Ross, attempt to spread the United Irish Rebellion into uh, Munster is defeated. 1817, first Great Lakes steamer, the Frontenac, is launched. 1829, HMS Pickle captures the armed slave ship uh, Valadora off the coast of Cuba. Now, who would want to be a, in command of a ship called the HMS Pickle? The only thing that make it better is if the 
uh, commander's name was Dill. 1832, the Jewish Rebellion breaks out in Paris in an attempt to overthrow the monarchy of Louis Philippe. 1837, Houston is incorporated by the Republic of Texas. 1849, Denmark becomes a constitutional monarchy by the signing of a new constitution. 1851, Harriet Beecher Stowe's anti-slavery serial Uncle Tom's Cabin, or Life Among the Lowly, starts a 10-month run in the National Era uh, abolitionist uh, newspaper. 1862, as the Treaty of Saigon is signed, ceding parts of South, South Vietnam to France, uh, the guerrilla leader, Tri Rong Dajin, decides to defy Emperor Tu Dirk of Vietnam and fight only against the Europeans. 1864, American Civil War, Battle of Piedmont. Union forces under General David Hunter defeat a Confederate army at uh, Piedmont, Virginia. Took nearly a thousand prisoners. 1873, Sultan Bargash bin Said of Zanzibar closes the great slave market under the terms of a treaty with Great Britain. 1883, the first regularly scheduled Orient Express departs Paris. 1888, the Rio de la Plata earthquake takes place. On this day in uh, 1893, the trial of Lizzie Borden for the mother of her father and stepmother begins in New Bedford, Massachusetts. Supposedly she gave her mother 40 whacks, but they couldn't prove it. Then she gave her father 41, couldn't prove that either. 1900, the Second Boer War, British soldiers take Pretoria. 1915, Denmark amends the Constitution to allow women's suffrage. 1916, Louis Brandeis is sworn in as Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, first American Jew to hold such a position. 1916, World War I, the Arab Revolt against the Ottoman Empire breaks out, fueled and funded in many cases by the Brits. 1917, World War I, conscription begins in the U.S. as Army Registration Day, 1940, World War II. All right, once again, water has been restored. 1940, World War II. After a uh, brief lull in the Battle of France, the Germans renewed the offensive against the remaining French division south of the River Somme in Operation Fall Riot. Um, 1941, World War II, 4,000 Kongjing residents are asphyxiated in a bomb shelter during the bombing of Kongjing. 1942, World War II, the U.S. declares war on Bulgaria, Hungary, and Romania. Of course, at that time, most people couldn't find them on a map, but we declared war against them. 1944. More than a thousand British bombers dropped 5,000 tons of bombs on German gun batteries on the Normandy coast in preparation for D-Day. 1945, Allied Control Council, military occupation, uh, governing body of Germany, formerly takes power. This day, 1946, a fire in the Hotel in Chicago killed 61. 1947, Cold War, Marshall Plan, and a speech at Harvard University. United States Secretary of State George Marshall calls for economic aid to war-torn Europe. 
1949, Thailand elects uh, Arapin as the first female members of Thailand's parliament. 1956, Elvis Presley, the king of rock and roll, introduces his new single, Hound Dog, on the Milton Berle show, scandalizing the audience with his suggestive hip movements. 1959, the first government of Singapore is sworn in. 1960, the Lake Bodum murders occur in Finland. The uh, One of the most infamous unsolved homicide cases in Finnish criminal history. June 5th, 1960, at Bodum Lake in Espo, Usima, Olga Bogorin and Anna Maki, who were both 15, and Seppo Boisman, 18, were killed by stabbing and blunt force trauma to their heads while sleeping in a tent. The fourth youth, whose name was Nils Gustafsson, who was 18 at the time, was found outside the tent with broken facial bones and stab wounds. Despite extensive investigation, the perpetrator was never identified. And, of course, over the years, various theories have been put forth. Gustafsson was unexpectedly arrested on suspicion of committing the murders in 2004, but uh, 2005 he was found not guilty. Somebody knows something. But I have a question as to why two 15-year-old girls and two 18-year-old boys were sleeping in a tent at a lake. Well, we'll never know the answer to that question. 1963, the British Secretary for War, John Profumo, resigns in a sex scandal known as the Profumo Affair. Also in 63, movement of 15 in Cordad, protest against the arrest of Ayatollah Rahalo Khomeini by the Shah of Iran, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, uh, take place. Several cities, masses of angry demonstrators are confronted by tanks and paratroopers. 1964, DSV Alvin is commissioned. Uh, 1967, Six Day War begins. Israel launches surprise strikes against the Egyptian airfield in response to the mobilization of Egyptian forces on the Israeli border. 1968, presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy is assassinated by Sirhan Sirhan. 1975, the Suez Canal opens for the first time since the Six Day War. 1975, the UK holds its first countrywide referendum on membership of the European Economic Community. 1976, the Teton Dam in Idaho collapses. 11 people are killed as a result of flooding. 1981, Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention reports that five people in Los Angeles have a rare form of pneumonia seen only in patients with weakened immune systems in what turns out to be the first to recognize cases of AIDS. 1983, more than 100 people are killed when the Russian river cruise ship Alexander Suvorov collides with a girder of the uh, Uyanovsk railway bridge. Collision causes a freight train to derail, further damaging the vessel, but the ship remained afloat and was eventually restored and returned to service. 1984, Operation Blue Star. Under orders from India's Prime Minister, Indira Gandhi, the Indian Army begins an invasion of the Golden Temple, the holiest site of the Sikh religion. 1989, the, the Tank Man halts the progress with a column of advancing tanks for over half an hour in uh, the Tenement Square protest of 1989. 
I actually saw the footage of that. 1993, portions of the Holbeck Hall Hotel in Scarborough, New Hampshire. New, one more time. Scarborough, North Yorkshire, UK. You fall into the sea following a landslide. 1995, the Jose Einstein condensate is first created. 1997, the Second Republic of Congo Civil War begins. 1998, a strike begins at the General Motors Parts Factory in Flint, Michigan. It spreads to five other assembly plants. Strike lasts for seven weeks. 2000, the Six-Day War in Kisangani begins in uh, Kisangani in the Democratic Republic of Congo between the Ugandan and the Rwandan forces. A large part of the city gets destroyed in a crossfire. 2001, Tropical Storm Allison makes landfall on the upper Texas coastline and a strong tropical storm and dumps large amounts of rain over Houston. The storm causes $5.5 billion in damages, making Allison the second costliest tropical storm in U.S. history. 2003, a severe heat wave across Pakistan and India reaches its peak. Temperatures exceed 122 degrees in the region. 2004, Noelma Mary, uh, mayor of uh, Bogales, uh, celebrates marriage for two men for the first time in France. 2006, Serbia declares independence from the State Union of Serbia and Montenegro. 2009, after 65 straight days of civil disobedience, at least 31 people are killed in clashes between security forces and indigenous people near Bangua in Peru. 2015, an earthquake with a Moment magnitude of 6.0 strikes at Rano Sabah, Malaysia, killing 18 people, including hikers and mountain guides, on uh, Mount uh, Kanabalu after mass landslides that occurred during the earthquake. This is the strongest earthquake to strike Malaysia since 1975. 2017, Montenegro becomes the 29th member of NATO. And in 2017, six Arab countries Bahrain, Egypt, Libya, Saudi Arabia, Yemen, and the United Arab Republics uh, cut diplomatic ties with Qatar, causing it to uh, destabilizing the region. All right, we've come to the um, end of our little history segment. You know, it's uh, interesting how much you can learn. about um, actual history. Uh, maybe I can get my the correct um, that's not right. Well let's try it one more time. There we go. Sometimes it just doesn't want to work. You know, there are many things we are taught in school. Not all of them are correct. There are many things that our, the powers that be want us to learn that aren't correct. For example, end of the Civil War, while watching a uh, our American cousins at a theater. Abraham Lincoln was assassinated by John Wilkes Booth. 
Booth was later shot and killed by a uh, sergeant in a barn in um, Maryland, I believe it was. I'm sorry, Virginia. Well, it's partially true and partially not. Now, during the early 1860s, John Wilkes Booth was the most celebrated, most popular actor in the Washington, D.C. area, if not along the entire eastern seaboard from Virginia to New York. His performances in Shakespeare's Hamlet and Richard III made him a star at the Theater of the Golders and generated headlines in all the newspapers. However, his biggest claim to fame was as the assassin of uh, President Lincoln. <coughs> now, contrary to what history books state and what we're taught, evidence has been accumulated since the 1960s that uh, has yielded insight into the notion that uh, Booth was not killed <coughs> by soldiers in 1865 to Virginia. He actually escaped and moved into the 19th, uh, into the 20th century. Now, after fleeing the nation's capital following the assassination, evidence shows he eventually left the country, <coughs> only to come back years later, changing his name, and reportedly resided for a time in Tennessee, Louisiana, and a number of other places under a variety of aliases. I mean, he was a... Um, Master of makeup. Eventually, he moved to Texas, where he lived for 20 years. And it was in Texas that his true identity was learned. Now, according to the history books, on the evening of April 14, 1865, President Lincoln was assassinated by the renowned actor John Wilkes Booth at Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C. After shooting Lincoln in the back of the head, it's recorded that Booth jumped from the presidential box to the stage and shouted, Sick temper Tyrannus, thus always to tyrants. <coughs> I don't know why I'm coughing. Now, his act accomplished, and he may have broken his leg when he hit the stage, but his act accomplished, he ran across the stage, out the theater into a dark alley, where a horse is being tended by an unsuspecting third employee. Booth jumped into the saddle and rode the horse out of the alley and raced eastward toward the Anacostia River. A few moments later, crossed the bridge into Maryland, the only bridge, I might add, that was not closed by order of military authorities. Days later, according to the official story, a man resembling Booth had made his way into Virginia and was taking refuge at the farm of Richard Garrett near the town of Port Royal. Now, the commanders of the, of the military uh, pursuit learned the location of this man and headed for the farm. When they got there, they discovered that the man they were chasing was hiding in the, the tobacco barn. One of the leaders of the pursuit, Lieutenant uh, Lafayette Baker, who went on to be involved in the Secret Service, attempted to convince the man to surrender. Well, for whatever reason, he refused, so the was given to set fire to the barn. They were going to uh, drive him into the open and uh, hopefully capture him. 
As the flames went up one side of the structure and the smoke began to fill the interior, an enlisted man, it was a sergeant actually named Thomas Corbett, despite orders to the contrary, made his way to one side of the barn, peered through the spaces between the structure's planks, saw the fugitive, took aim and fired. Hit the fugitive in the right side of the head, right below the ear. Penetrated a vertebra and came out on the left side. Well, as you might guess, the seriously wounded victim dropped to the ground. Soldiers rushed in and pulled him out of the burning structure. He was bound to be wounded, so he was taken to the front porch of the Garrett house and placed on a mattress. There he lay for hours, moaning in pain, till he died about seven in the morning. The minutes of the death of the man the government claimed was John Wilkes Booth. Conversation began to filter through the soldiers and others at the scene that the dead man was not John Wilkes Booth, the actor. Booth was known to have dark brown hair and a brown mustache, but he did not have a beard. He had never had a beard. Dead man on the mattress had red hair and a substantial red beard. The farmer whose barn had just been burned down by the soldiers, told authorities the visitor identified himself as James W. Boyd and asked to spend the night. Well, curiously enough, the body of the man that the government insisted was Booth was about to have a strange journey. Through an extremely roundabout route, it was eventually transported back to the Washington Navy Yard put on board a vessel. A number of individuals were permitted to view the body, and some of them identified it as Booth, but it was later learned that those who said it was Booth barely knew him. They recognized him, they said, because they'd seen him on the stage. Others claimed it wasn't Booth. Well, it's, it's difficult to understand, but none of the Booth family or close friends of the assassin were allowed to, to view the remains government summoned a photographer named Alexander Gardner to take a picture of the dead man. And he was supervised and directed by War Department Detective James Wardell. Gardner was allowed to take one photograph when it was developed. It, along with the plate, was immediately seized by government officials. And later the government denied that any photographs were ever taken of the body. And frankly, to this day, nobody knows the whereabouts of that photograph. Well, what eventually became of the body of the man the government claimed was John Wilkes Booth has uh, also become something of a mystery. One account states it was secretly buried in the floor of the Washington, D.C. arsenal. Another story has the body carried out to sea and thrown overboard, a la Osama bin Laden. But then February 15, 1869, the remains of the man the government assisted was John Wilkes Booth was actually turned over to the Booth family in Baltimore. Delivered to the undertaking establishment of Harvey and Marr in Baltimore. And these remains, which by this time was little more than a skeleton with only bits of flesh and hair remaining attached to it, was viewed by dozens of Booth family members and friends. One of the viewers was a man named Basil Moxley, a longtime friend of Booth. Now, Moxley was interested to note that the skeleton had red hair. He said it wasn't Booth, somebody else. Others of you the remains expressed doubt that they belonged to Booth. But 
Be that as it may, the uh, skeleton was later buried in the Booth family plot. So if the man shot and killed at Garrett's barn wasn't Booth, as more and more investigators have come to believe, then what happened to Booth? Curiously, while a contingent of the U.S. military tracked a suspect to Garrett's barn, killed him, and declared him to be Booth, a separate group of soldiers followed the trail of another suspect westward. And along the way, the evidence accumulated that the soldiers were on the trail of the real Booth, but they just weren't able to catch him. The evidence that led the pursuers to, to believe that Booth, during the ensuing weeks, made his way to Canada and on to England, where he remained for a few years. Booth subsequently uh, is said to have traveled to India, where he joined an acting troupe, performing roles in his favorite plays, Richard III and Hamlet. In the theater programs from that era, he's listed as John Booth Wilkes. Also, evidence that Booth's sister in Baltimore got a number of letters from him while he was in India. Now, some researchers have actually suggested that Booth died in India, but there's no proof. There does exist, though, evidence that the man, believed by many to be the most famous assassin in history, came back to the U.S. and resided and earned his living in the state of Texas. Now, despite the official government position that John Wilkes Booth was shot and killed and that the case of the assassination was closed, rumors abounded he was still alive. The assassin was allegedly spotted in Salon on several occasions. Andrew Jackson Donaldson, a close friend of Booth, uh, claimed to have encountered the assassin on a Pacific island in the late 1860s. According to Donaldson, Booth asked him not to tell anybody. one point in the conversation, Booth gave Donaldson a gold medallion and asked him to deliver it to his brother, Edwin Booth. An ex-soldier, lawyer, statesman, high-powered mason, General Albert Pike, resided in Washington. One of his favorite actors was, of course, John Wilkes Booth, and Pike attended his plays on several occasions. One evening while drinking with an old friend, Colonel M.W. Connolly, at the Pickwick Hotel in Fort Worth, Texas, um, Pike's gaze wandered to the mirror behind the bar, and reflected in the mirror, he saw the image of a man he recognized immediately. Turning, he stared directly at the customer seated a few tables away and said, My God, it's John Wilkes Booth. Well, with that, the man at the table jumped up and ran out of the bar. And over the years um, since the assassination, Booth has been seen by friends and others on numerous occasions. During the 1870s, a man going by the name of John St. Helen was living and operating a saloon in Glen Rose, Texas, 54 miles southwest of Fort Worth. One day, St. Helen visited a lawyer named Finnis Bates at an office in Granbury, 17 miles away, asked him to defend him on a charge of running a saloon without a license. Now, St. Helen admitted to Bates he was indeed guilty of the charge, but stated he could uh, he would resist appealing at a court hearing. The barkeeper told Bates his real name wasn't John St. Helen, and he was concerned his true identity might be discovered. He said the risk was too great. Well, several weeks later, St. Helen moved to Granbury, and he and Bates became good friends. According to Bates' notes, St. Helen bore a remarkable resemblance to John Wilkes Booth and showed an intimacy with every detail of theater work. He subscribed to several theater-related publications and could recite most of Shakespeare's plays and was particularly fond of Richard III. Late one night, Bates was summoned to St. Helen's bedside uh, 
St. Helen told Bates he was ill and didn't think he'd live, and he told Bates to search under his pillow where he'd find a tintype. Well, Bates did and retrieved an image of John St. Helen. St. Helen asked Bates to send the tintype to Edwin Booth in Baltimore with a note stating the man in the picture had passed away. St. Helen then put a hand on Bates' arm and confessed he was, in fact, John Wilkes Booth, assassin of President Abraham Lincoln. Well, as you might guess, this was something of a uh, shock to Bates, but he said he would do as requested and sat up with St. Helen through the night. Well, for several weeks, St. Helen was eventually, though he began to improve and in time recovered. When he was able to do so, he invited Bates to walk with him along a tree-lined path a short distance out of Granbury. And during the walk, St. Helen once again told the lawyer he was Booth and he asked Bates to keep the knowledge secret. Went on to provide significant details relative to his life as Booth, the assassination of Lincoln, and his escape. Well, Bates actually wrote a book called The Escape and Suicide of John Wilkes Booth. And according to what he wrote, Sam Holland told him the principal instigator in the slaying of Lincoln was the vice president, Andrew Johnson. St. Helen claimed that he, Booth, and visited with Johnson on the afternoon of April 14th, 1865, only four hours before the assassination, that the vice president informed him had been arranged for General Grant to be out of town at uh, what had been cleared to facilitate the escape from Forge Theater into Maryland without interference from the military. Now, initially, Bates was somewhat disbelieving that President Lincoln's assassination was a culmination of a conspiracy. But throughout the conversation, old St. Helen related a number of precise details relative to the murder of Lincoln, the escape from Ford's Theater, and the flight through Maryland and the Virginia countryside. Details that differed markedly from the accounts provided by the government. Researchers who've examined Bates' account maintain the information could have... Uh, come only from somebody with intimate experience regarding these events. Specifics provided by St. Helen were unknown to historians at the time. And if St. Helen was an imposter, you have to wonder why he didn't relate commonly accepted, widely publicized aspects of the assassination and escape, but instead told of an entirely different and quite probable account that uh, conflicts with the government's version of events. Now, one particular telling piece of information concerns Booth's diary. Official version says it was taken from the pockets of the dying man at Garrett's farm. Well, according to journals and papers analyzed by a handful of researchers, though, Booth's diary was lost in a grove of trees at a location near Gambo Creek, where he'd camped at one point during his escape. St. Helen told Bates on April 22nd that uh, he discovered he'd lost his diary, some letters, and a photograph of his sister. The information that Booth's diary and other items were actually found at Gambo Creek didn't come to light until a hundred years later. No possible way that St. Helen could have learned such a thing from another source. St. Helen also told Bates he decided to come to Texas after spending a year in New Orleans where he taught school went by the alias of Nay. When he arrived in Glen Rose, he adopted the name John St. Helen and opened a saloon. 1872, he moved to Granbury. St. Helen, also known as John Wilkes Booth, remained in Texas for the next 20 years, mostly in and around Granbury. And other than Finnis Bates, he never told anybody else he was John Wilkes Booth during that time period. 
Well, based on the available evidence, it was believed that sometime during the late 1890s, John St. Helen departed Texas and moved to El Reno, Oklahoma. And here he adopted the name of uh, David E. George. And though unemployed, it was subsequently learned by Bates that St. Helen regularly received large amounts of money from the Booth family in Baltimore. While in El Reno, he participated in a number of theatrical productions, by all accounts provided excellent performances equal to the finest actors of the day. And he particularly excelled in the performances of Hamlet and Richard III, known to be Booth's favorite uh, plays. Well, in April of 1900, George suffered severe depression and swallowed a large amount of prescription drugs and was convinced he was going to die. And while still barely conscious, he had told a Miss Young he had a confession to make. He told her he killed one of the best men that ever lived, Abraham Lincoln. He asked Miss Young to bring him a pen and paper. When she did, he scribbled, I'm going to die before the sun goes down, and signed it John Wilkes, uh, J. Wilkes Booth. Well... Some folks can't do anything right. He recovered from his suicide attempt and several weeks later moved to Enid, Oklahoma, 62 miles to the north. Resided in a room at the Grand Hotel and earned his living as a part-time handyman and house painter. He was known around Enid as an alcoholic and maybe a drug addict since he regularly took morphine. George, as did John St. Helen, dressed in the manner of Booth, wearing black semi-dress style of suit with the best fabric, always with a turned-down Byron collar and dark tie. Tailor-made, of course. New and well-pressed, his pants well-creased. Shoes were patent leather and his had a black Stetson Derby. And George, like uh, Booth, was known to drink heavily and would occasionally launch into extended soliloquies and poetry. Clearly well-educated and apparently quite intimate with the works of Shakespeare. Learning in 1902, Blanche DeBar Booth, daughter of John's brother, Junius Brutus Booth, paid George a visit in Enid. On the morning of January 13, 1903, George made another suicide attempt, and this time he actually got it right. Swallowed a large amount of strychnine and died a short time after that. Then, living in Memphis, Tennessee, Finnis Bates read a strange article about a man named David George who died in Oklahoma, who some believed was John Wilkes Booth. And Bates wondered if the man he knew, um, John St. Helen, was the man who died in Enid. And Bates had heard since nobody claimed the body was been placed in a storeroom to such time as it could be disposed of one way or another. So Bates left Memphis and on arriving at Enid went to view the body and according to Bates, George and St. Helen were the same man. Well, after the years passed since the uh, death of David George, also known as John St. Helen, uh, also known as John Wilkes Booth, a series of investigations have added to the accumulated evidence that the three were the same man. Now, Finnish Bateson eventually took possession of the cadaver, and in time, the, the desiccated remains became a mummy. And the mummy, in turn, was subjected to a fascinating journey that ranged from being displayed in carnivals as the assassin of Abraham Lincoln to being studied by medical and forensic experts. One of the studies involved a comparison of the physical aspects of the David E. George mummy to that of Booth. The only officially recognized study today for such was the Bertillion examination, which evaluated the features of George and Booth, and a number of compelling similarities were found. The test involved sitting and standing height, length of the outstretched arm, length and breadth of the head, the length of the right ear, as well as scars and eye color and other features. And although 
Certainly imperfect, the Bertillon test concluded that the shape of George's head, specifically the structure of the forehead, was what was the contour of the face around the eyes and the jawline bore a striking resemblance to John Wilkes Booth. The analysis also revealed that the structure of the nose, particularly the bridge, the indenture of George's left nostril, and the distance from nose to mouth also bore a resemblance to Booth. Other features described by the analysis included a cockroach eyebrow manifested by both men, the ears, and the striking similarity of their hands. Well, George, according to Bates, bore the marks of a broken right leg, and it was presumed by many that when Booth jumped from the president's box at 4.30, he broke his left leg, landing on the stage. Others who examined the body, though, stated they found no evidence of a break at all. In 1932, Clarence True Wilson, a physician, conducted a thorough study of the George Booth similarities and convinced they were one and the same man. Over the years, Bates showed photographs of David George to a number of old friends of the famous actor. Each and every case identified the image as the photograph of John Wilkes Booth. And there was another uh, particularly telling piece of evidence involved. It was Booth's signet ring, a piece of jewelry he was never without. The ring, which sported the initials JWB in bold letters across the face, was not found on the body of the man killed at Garrett's barn. It was commonly seen on the finger of David George. Now, George told Finnish Bates that when spotting the approach of two law enforcement officers, he feared that he'd be identified, so he took the ring off his finger, put it in his mouth, and accidentally swallowed it. 1931, the mummy of George was being examined by a group of seven physicians at Chicago's Northwestern University when an astounding discovery was made. A signet ring was found embedded in the flesh of the body cavity. It had been somewhat modified as a result of the action of digestive juices, but the initials JWB could be clearly seen on its face. And in a summary of the analysis, the medical team wrote, they could safely state the body they worked on was that of John Wilkes Booth. Well, if in fact there were lies told about the, the assassin of President uh, Lincoln, you think we got absolute truth about the assassination of President Kennedy? I would tend to doubt that. Well, I got one more short little story. You know, the legendary outlaw Sam Bass was one of several notorious outlaws who operated out of the state of Texas during the last half of the 19th century. Following a series of holdups and the accumulation of thousands of dollars in cores and jewelry, the outlaw buried his wealth in four different uh, places in Denton County. One of these uh, caches has been found, but where the remainder are located remains a, a Texas mystery. Like those of many outlaws of the story, Sam Bass mixes legend with facts. But there are enough documented accounts related to his escapades to validate his reputation as a cunning, efficient outlaw, a clever and successful robber, a man who hoarded what eventually became well over a million dollars in stolen gold coins and jewelry. Now, he was born in Indiana in 1851, but he was orphaned early, passed from relative to relative, and forced to work long days on various farms in which he lived. When he turned 18, he was determined to escape from the toil and ground of plowing and planting and tilling. 
Heard details of opportunities existed in Texas, as well as accounts of cowboys and ranching and adventure. He dreamt nightly of traveling to Texas becoming a cowboy. And finally, one day, he packed what few belongings he possessed and headed out for Texas. Arrived in Denton County in 1870, having turned 19 on the journey. He was a strappy young man, not afraid of hard work, and found a job on a local ranch and learned horsemanship and livestock handling. At first, he was thrilled with riding and roping and leading the life of a working cowboy, but uh, the daily tedium of tending cattle soon bored him rigid, and he thought he sought other creative outlets. Soon found work with a Denton Freight Company, owned and operated by the county sheriff. Began hauling freight throughout North Texas. As a result, came to know the countryside, the trails, and the people. He was a charming young man, readily made friends with all he met. During his time period, he developed an intense interest in horse racing and often squandered his earnings betting on comp competitions. And in time, he acquired his own racing mare and began to travel the countryside betting his horse against others. His travels took him into East Texas and parts of Oklahoma. And after several months of racing and betting, he, he had amassed quite a bit of money and winnings. Jed, Joel Collings, a friend of Bassett from his cowboy days, uh, talked to future outlaw on investing his winnings in a herd of cattle. Bass did so, and the two men combined their herds and arranged to drive to Dodge City where they expected to sell and make a profit. But by the time the two men and their cattle arrived at Dodge City, the market had taken a turn for the worse. Discouraged and undecided what to do, they decided to kill some time in Dodge City Tavern one afternoon. And then they learned that top dollar was being paid for beef in Deadwood and Dakota Territory 500 miles to the north. And it was in the center of a huge gold mining boom and citizens were paying high prices for fresh meat. And several weeks later, Bass and Collins arrived at Deadwood where they sold their cattle for good profit. After many months on the trail with their pockets heavy with money, Bass and Collins paid off their drovers and began what turned into a long and expensive celebration. Their night on the town turned into a great deal of drinking and gambling before the sun rose the next day. The two men had managed to spend almost all the money earned from the sale of their cattle. Well, they began to wonder how they were going to get back to Texas. After several fruitless days of looking for work in Deadwood, the two were completely broke. So in desperation, they decided to rob a stagecoach. Listing the help of three other men who were down on their luck, they spent the next six weeks holding up stagecoaches near Deadwood. Robbing stages turned out to be easy before long. Bass and Collins saw greater challenges. Bass considered robbing the bank at Deadwood, but decided the security was too strong. So they went south looking for easier prey. They occasionally robbed stagecoaches and travelers along the way, and eventually they arrived in Big Springs, Nebraska. Union Pacific Railroad ran through Big Springs, and this gave Bass an idea. He decided to rob a train. When they got to town, the gang rode toward the railroad station, and hiding in a grove of trees just beyond the building, they watched the eastbound train pull in. And while the crew was distracted with filling the water tanks, the, the outlaw struck. Wearing masks, they rode up to the train crew, leveled their revolvers, and forced them to open the locked door of the express car. To their delight, they found a payroll trunk containing 3,000 freshly minted $20 gold pieces, each bearing the date of 1877. 
After loading the gold onto the horses, Bass and his gang systematically robbed all the passengers, taking money and watches and jewelry. When they finished, they mounted up and rode off into the night. Well, after they'd ridden for about an hour, they halted and divided the loot. Bass suggested they split up to confuse any pursuers with minutes, each of the bandits riding in a different direction. Each heavily weighted down with his share of the gold and other robbery loot. Bass, with his saddlebags filled with a fortune in gold coins and jewelry, set his sights for Texas. When he got back to Denton County, he learned his friend Collins had been captured by law enforcement officials in Nebraska and shot and killed. $25,000 reward worth of gold and jewelry were found in Collins' saddlebags returned to the railroad. Well, because the coins were so new and the fact that each had a, the same date of 1877, Bass feared it'd be easy to identify. He decided it'd be foolish to begin spending them right away, so he hid the entire amount, intending to come back for it later, when detection would be less likely. It is believed that he buried his fortune in four separate caches in the hideout he established at the Cove Hollow, a relatively isolated area surrounded by dense forest and brush 30 miles from the town of Denton. According to Bass, the caches were located close to each other. Well, within a few days, he organized another gang that robbed stagecoaches in that area. And as the stage companies grew more wary and added more guards, he decided to turn to robbing trains again. The truth is, Sam Bass is the one that introduced train robbery to Texas. First in a long line of notorious train, uh, Texas train robbers. In a span of six weeks, Bass and his gang robbed four trains, all within a few miles of Denton. During one of the robberies, though, he was identified, and his image soon appeared on wanted posters throughout the area. Many are convinced that after Bass committed a robbery, he cared to share the loot to his Cove Hollow hideout and added it to one or more of his caches of gold coins. So over time, he had to have uh, amassed a tremendous fortune. Well, frustrated with the successful repeated robberies by Bass and his gang, the railroad companies called in the Texas Rangers. And it wasn't before the Rangers began to close in on the outlaws. As the pursuit increased, Bass decided to abandon the Denton area and led his gang of train robbers south into central Texas. Well, since the railroads had been alerted to his depredations and fortified their payroll signals with armed guards, he decided to shift his pattern and rob a bank instead began preparing to rob the Williamson County Bank at the settlement of Round Rock, about 20 miles north of Austin. Unbeknown to him, though, one of his gang members, James Murphy, tipped off the Rangers. Forced the Texas Rangers arrived at Round Rock one day, had a bass and set a trap. And it was reported as the outlaw and two of his men rode up to the bank. A number of Rangers opened fire and a gun battle broke out. One member of the gang was killed during the initial a fusillade, and uh, Bass was wounded and fell from his horse during the escape. Severe pain with great difficulty, climbed back onto his horse and took off. Third member of the gang escaped unharmed. Well, the Texas Rangers tracked the wounded and bleeding Bass the next morning and found him seated beneath the tree, bleeding to death. Now they tied him to a horse and took him back to Round Rock, where he died a short time later on his 27th birthday. Along with the death of Sam Bass, people began to wonder about the vast wealth it was believed he'd accumulated from his train and stagecoach robberies and hidden in a secret location. Some who sympathized with the outlaw claimed he'd given most of his money to the poor and the needy. 
and this Robin Hood image has often been applied to Bass and has some basis in fact. He was known to help the underprivileged. Also, people regarded him as nothing more than a ruthless outlaw who gambled away much of the loot he stole. Yeah, but in spite of the two conflicting claims, most are convinced he buried the bulk of his wealth in separate caches somewhere in Cove Hollow. Well, sometime during the first decade of the 1900s, a farmer named Henry Chapman found what many believe was part of the Sam Bass treasure. Chapman owned a small farm near Spring Town in Williamson County. One day as he was riding through the woods between Clear for, uh, Fork Creek and Salt Creek, his mule began acting contrary. The farmer dismounted to check the cinch on the, the mule, and as he was tightening it, he noticed a low mound of dirt a few feet off the trail. Well, at first he thought it was a grave, but upon closer examination, he, he decided it wasn't. So curious, he dug into the mound and was soon discover, surprised to discover he'd, what he later described as a bushel-sized wooden box filled at the top of gold coins, all with the date of 1877 on them. Well, when word of Chapman's discovery got around, most were convinced he'd stumbled on some one of Sam Bass's treasure caches. Dozens of hopeful fortune hunters flocked to Cove Hollow to search for the others, but... Nobody was successful. Except for the discovery by Chapman, none of the rest of Bass's 1877 coins ever appeared in circulation, supporting the fact that the remainder of his treasure is still buried somewhere. The remaining three caches of gold coins, as well as some jewelry, likely still lie in the ground somewhere in Cove Hollow near an old trail that winds between Clear Fork and Salt Creek. If it's found, it's estimated the value of those three um, caches would amount to several million dollars which would make it a worthwhile endeavor if you've got nothing else to do well on that note I'll come to the end of the day's show we'll be back tomorrow and once again we'll talk about some um, little discussed topics until then this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall show saying have a truly great evening